All right. So uh, I was saying uh, that um, we have talked about the introduction, and Paul in the first 15 verses has a rather longer introduction because he is seeking to explain to the Roman church why he's interested in them, why he's writing to them. It's not a church he established, and he's never visited. Remember, Paul said in chapter 15, we read that his policy was, and he says it in Corinthians also, his policy is not to go and preach the gospel to where other people have preached it. He was a pioneer missionary, and God called him to preach to the Gentiles, to establish churches among the Gentiles primarily. And so he didn't go where another man had laid a foundation, another person had, had, had preached. But here he's going to Rome, and he's going, we learn, because he wants to use Rome as a base for his operations in the West. He's, a, he's evangelized uh, most of the uh, cities in the eastern part of the Roman Empire in three missionary journeys, and he's finished that. Uh, this is the year 56. He's in Corinth, and he's finishing up, getting ready to go to Jerusalem. So he's writing to explain, I want to come to you and you, and you be my base of operations. And so he wants to make sure they understand the gospel as he understands it. And his understanding is the only understanding. It's the right understanding. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. So he's going to explain that gospel to us in this epistle, particularly in chapters one through eight. And uh, we're just about ready to start on that. Uh, chapters one through eight will be divided into two divisions, as we'll see. We'll see. And he'll explain the gospel and the doctrine of salvation very clearly. Now, he starts off in verses 16 and 17 by discussing the theme, which is the gospel. And we saw last week, he said he's not ashamed of the gospel. And why is he not ashamed? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. That is, the preaching of the gospel, it brings people to salvation. It's powerful uh, in response to the word. And now, in this final verse here, in verse 17, he says, uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Why is that true? Why is it? How is it that that works? Because, he says, in the gospel, there is revealed a righteousness from God. And let's read verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And I say here, Paul now shows <clears throat> why or how the gospel is the power of God leading to salvation. It's because for there is in the gospel a revelation, a revealing of the righteousness of God. Now, this is an important concept, extremely important in Romans and extremely important in trying to understand the gospel and explain it to other people. Uh, Paul's not talking about God's attribute of righteousness. We know what that is. God is righteous, means he always acts in accordance with what is right, and he himself is the final standard of righteousness. Now, it's related, what he's talking about here, but he's talking about a righteousness that is from God. Uh, I say here, instead, he means the righteousness from God, a righteousness that God gives uh, the word that's used often is imputed or credited righteousness. That's the result of God's act of justifying. 
We'll talk about all that justification in a moment. So uh, the 1984 edition of the NIV translated it, a righteousness, or uh, in the gospel, the righteousness from God. There's some debate about that, but it is a righteousness that God gives, that he imputes, uh, and we'll explain what that righteousness is and where it comes from. But that's very clear. Romans 10.3, notice this. Since they, that is Israel, did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then Philippians 3.7, here's the clincher that it kind of explains this. Now, in the context, in verse 6, Paul is, Paul is talking about his salvation experience and his past life. And he says, back in the past, before I was a Christian, he says in verse 6, if you looked at the righteousness in my life, he says, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. He says, if you looked outwardly at my life as a Pharisee, I lived a, a life that was faultless by, by standard. I didn't lie. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't steal. I didn't bear false witness. I was keeping the Ten Commandments. Now, really, he wasn't, as, we, as we'll learn later in chapter 7, but the point is, outwardly, it looked like that. But when you look at the heart, now, one of the problems with Judaism even today is that only outward sins are really considered sinful. That's even true in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, just because you have a sinful desire, that's not really sin. It is sin, but not in Roman Catholic Church, not in Judaism. It's only if you act on that that you're sinful. And so in, the, in, the, in, the, in Paul's life, he didn't consider himself a sinner by nature, a depraved sinner, someone who has a sinful nature. He thought, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm keeping the law. And that's what he says here. And then he says in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me. So all this righteous life, all this life as a Pharisee, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That is all this uh, life that I lived and I was, try I was living up, I was a Pharisee, I was a very religious person. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So Paul thought he was very righteous because he was keeping the law. But he says, that's no good. But that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So this righteousness that Paul is talking about that's revealed in the gospel is a righteousness that God gives to us, he imputes to us, that makes us acceptable. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that's Christ, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as I say here at the bottom, uh, say next, the right, this righteousness is a forensic, or a legal, that's what it means, speaking of the righteousness God places to the account of the guilty sinner. Martin Luther called it alien righteousness because this righteousness that God imputes to us is not our own. It's alien to us. Uh, 
it's it's our our righteousness is not sufficient, uh, as we'll see. Now, I want to talk a little bit here about the terms righteousness, righteous, justified, justification. Now, we have two different word groups in English. We have righteous and we have justified. But these are really the same words in Greek. Um, so to be just is to be righteous. They're really from the same word group. Righteousness, dikaiosune, righteous, dikaios, justify. They're all, they're all really the same kind of word group. But we need different words in English because... Um, it's it's difficult to say uh, it's difficult to say um, I'm a we can say I'm a justified person I'm a just person I'm a righteous person but you it's hard to say uh, God justified me you can't say you can say God justified me but you can't say God righteous to me God righteous to me you know you can say he imputed righteousness but if you're looking for one word then the word justification is the word God justified me. So we're talking about the same concept here, imputed righteousness, justification. So I say, number one, the word justify is a forensic or legal term with the meaning acquit. It's the normal word to use when the accused is declared not guilty. It means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. It's the opposite of condemn. To condemn does not mean to make wicked but to declare guilty. Similarly, to justify means to declare just. So we're talking about like in the courtroom. And so when the judge says you're guilty, uh, he's not saying anything necessarily about the character of the person. It doesn't change the person when he says you're guilty or if he says you're innocent. I mean, someone may be a terrible person. And the judge says, well, we found you innocent. It doesn't affect the character of the person. These are just legal declarations. You're declared to be this. You're not condemned. So I say to be justified means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against a person because of their sins. So when we're talking about their, this righteousness that comes from God, this is what we're talking about is justification. God imputes righteousness to us he justifies us. He declares us righteous. He's not talking about our character at this point. God's interested in our character, as we'll see. He wants us to become righteous, but that's not what we're talking about now. We're talking about uh, a declaration, a, a imputation. Now, here's a definition from Grudem, a theologian. He says, justification, number two, is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So there's two parts to this justification. He thinks of us as our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. He declares us to be righteous in his sight. So three, one aspect of our justification includes the forgiveness of sins, but that's just one aspect. So, you know, you've probably heard the, the saying, justification means just as if you've never sinned or just as if I'd never sinned. That's true. Justification means when I'm justified, when I'm saved, 
and God declares me righteous, it's just as if I've never sinned. God doesn't hold my sin against me. But that's not all there is to justification. That's one aspect. It includes the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, I say, however, uh, I'm quoting here Romans 4, 5. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count again him, against, against them. So Paul says here in Romans 4, 5, talking about David in Psalm 32, that justification means the forgiveness of sins. That's great. That's, that's true. But number four, the second aspect of our justification is God imputing the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. And that was even back there in Romans 4, that first part said, however, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So God, the second part of justification is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us. God imputes, that is, regards or counts the righteousness of Christ as belonging to us. He credits it to our account. For just as through, this is Romans 5, 19, just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So when we're saved, our sins are forgiven, we're justified, but also the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Now, if you've, you know, since you've all joined CBC, I assume, you've probably been grilled by Pastor Ken when he interviews you, uh, and I've been on, on some of those interviews, and one of the things I noticed, he always emphasizes this, and he'll always say, you, you, you probably believe this, or you may not know about it, but I want to emphasize to you that an important part of justification is this imputation of Christ's righteousness. You know your sins are forgiven when you're saved, but equally as important is that the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. In other words, it's often said that just because your sins are forgiven doesn't mean you get to go to heaven. You need, some, you need, to, you need to be perfect to get into heaven. And to get into heaven, you need perfection, and that you do have. You have a perfect standing. We all have, who are trusted Christ, the righteousness, his righteousness, Kent, Pastor Ken will often speak about this as the active and passive obedience of Christ. Christ was obedient. He came to earth and was obedient to the Father, obedient to death. <clears throat> and sometimes that's talked about as his active obedience. He kept the law perfectly. He was perfectly righteous. He never sinned. He kept the law perfectly. That's his active obedience. And then his passive obedience, he died on the cross in obedience to the will of the Father. And that righteousness of Christ is applied to us when we are saved. <clears throat> and so when we get to heaven, you know, the old question about St. Peter says, why should I let you into heaven? Well, the correct answer is I've trusted Christ. <laughs> He's forgiven my sins and his righteousness has been applied to me. And therefore I can come in because God views me through Christ as righteous. So we're talking here about uh, verse uh, 17, where in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, 
I say here the word revealed is in the present tense, emphasizing the fact that the way to be right with God is constantly being revealed through the preaching of the gospel. When we tell others about the gospel, when the gospel is proclaimed, then this righteousness is being revealed. Verse 16, I say, has already indicated that God's salvation comes only to those who believe. The same points underscored in the, underscored in the, first, in the present verse with the phrase, by faith from first to last, and the quotation from Habakkuk 2.4. While there is debate about the meaning of the phrase translated from, from faith from first to last, remember the verse says here, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And that's the NIV translation. I think it's, I think it's right. I think it's very good. It's a way to emphasize the importance of faith. It begins by faith. It ends in faith. It means like by faith alone or nothing but faith. So it's a good translation way to, to handle that phrase. I say here, Paul confirms his teaching by citing a passage found in Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. Now, a better way of maybe understanding how Paul understands that is the way I've laid it out here in your notes the one who is righteous by faith shall live. That is, the words by faith could be taken with shall live, or they can be taken by faith, uh, by, with righteous, righteous by faith, rather than uh, shall live by faith, righteous by faith. And that seems clear as to how Paul understands it as, he's, as he lays out the next uh, uh, eight, uh, eight chapters, especially the next four chapters. Um the one who is righteous by faith shall live. And you can see on your uh, diagram there that I have, or the, the notes I have there, that <clears throat> chapters one through four uh, are dealing with the first part of that uh, quotation, the one who is righteous by faith. And chapters five through eight are dealing with the second part, shall live, shall, shall have eternal life. What does it mean to live a Christian life and ultimately to be in heaven. So chapters one through four deal with this topic of justification that we're talking about and explaining right now. Justification. We, in justification, uh, God declares us righteous. Now, God is interested in us becoming righteous. He wants us to become righteous. Uh, as we are here on earth serving him, he wants us to become righteous so we can uh, reflect his glory, and so we can uh, share the gospel, so we can represent him uh, properly. He wants us to become righteous, and ultimately, when we see him, when we go to heaven, we will become perfectly righteous. We'll, we'll be glorified. So in chapters one through four, declare, but in chapters five through eight, as we'll see, it talks about sanctification, which is the doctrine of being made righteous, made, being made holy. So the book, chapters one through eight, is really explaining the doctrine of salvation, particularly these two aspects of it, uh, ju uh, justification and sanctification. Um, if we looked at, you know, the doctrine of salvation, the, big, the, the term salvation covers a lot of different concepts. We say we're saved. And that includes all kinds of terms that Paul's and Paul, particularly, and others use. There's redemption, there's election, there's reconciliation, there's regeneration, 
So these terms are used to describe various aspects of salvation. Redemption means, you remember, uh, it, it's the word to purchase, to purchase out of the slave market. And so when we are saved, we are redeemed from the slave market of sin. We're regenerated. We're born again. We're adopted into God's family. We have the rights of sonship. You know, there's, so all these terms are used. But uh, the main two terms that Paul wants to emphasize here are justification and sanctification in the first uh, eight chapters of Romans. We're united with Christ. Human Christ means we're in Christ. Paul uses that phrase, we're in Christ, rather than in Adam. Chapter 5, Paul will say one is either in Adam, we're all born in Adam, but through faith in Christ, we become united with Christ. And as a result of a union with Christ, we are justified, and ultimately we are being sanctified. And so uh, that's the two big doctrines, teachings, that Paul will discuss in Romans 1 through 8. Now, we know this is true, particularly because in chapter 5, remember I said chapter 5 begins a new section, Paul begins in chapter 5 by saying, since we have been justified by faith, he summarizes everything in chapters 1 through 4 with that one statement, since we have been justified by faith. So chapters 1 through 4 are about justification by faith, and then 5 through 8, as we'll see, are about how we are made righteous, how we are becoming holy, and how we should live, and how do we do that. That's chapters 5 through 8. All right, let's begin looking at uh, <clears throat> Roman numeral three in our outline. So we're dividing uh, chapters one through eight into two sections. The first section, chapters one through four, the revelation of the righteousness that comes from God by faith alone. And that means that 118 through 45, as we've seen, is the one who is righteous by faith expounded. Really, justification is explained in 118 through 425. Now, the first subsection under that is the need of the righteous, and that is from God. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, Paul doesn't start right out with explaining justification. I've sort of explained it because I've talked about it in verse uh, 17. So I've kind of explained the doctrine so we'll know what we're getting into. But Paul doesn't explain it. He actually doesn't get to it until he gets to chapter 3 and verse 21. That's a long time. <laughs> 321, until he really talks about the doctrine of justification specifically. Now, why is that? Well, uh, it's often been said, I think the pastor whose ministry I was saved in or used to say, you've got to get a person lost before you can get them saved. And uh, that's what Paul is doing. He's going to explain why we need this righteousness, why we need to be saved, why we need to be justified. And the reason is, is because we are sinful. We are sinners. And so the first step in leading anyone to Christ, the first step is, at least one of the first steps, is to explain to them that they need this salvation. 
there probably was a time in our country when most people you talk to in our country, I think a lot of people when I was growing up, they wouldn't have denied that they're sinful and they knew there was a God and they were familiar with the Bible and, and so forth. But you meet people today, they don't think they're sinful or they've done anything wrong. They think they're pretty good. So that's the first step. And Paul is going to now explain that the need, why do we need this righteousness that is from God? And, um, I say here, uh, under that point, before giving his exposition of the righteousness from God, Paul shows why it's so urgently necessary for people to receive that righteousness. He does it in 118 through 320. If Paul is going to make it clear that God's righteousness can be experienced by the unregenerate person, only if one humbly receives it by faith, he must demonstrate and prove that the sinner is under the power of sin, that sin is a dominating, ruling force in the life of the unbeliever. So this passage, 118 through through 20, is going to teach that all people need this divine righteousness because they have no righteousness of their own that will enable them to stand before God. Remember that famous verse, Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags as far as God is concerned. People do good things, relatively good things, but None of them are done uh, purely out of pure motives, and they, they're not, they're, they don't commend us to God. Uh, so all of us come into this world morally and spiritually bankrupt. And therefore, Paul will say, he'll explain, we're under the wrath of God. Um, so absolutely is sin's power over us that it's only God's power available in the gospel that can rescue us. And that's what Paul will explain. So I say the argument from 118 through 38 proceeds if it were moving inward through a series of concentric circles. So he has a statement in 118 where he takes in everybody, all of humanity. Uh, then he looks at humanity apart from special revelation, mainly the Gentiles, one 19 through 32. Then he starts talking about the righteous person. I say religious, per, religious person here, 2, 1 through 16. He's really, he really has the Jew in mind, but he's talking about any religious person. And then finally he gets to the Jews, 2, 17 through 3, 8. It's necessary for him to explain that even Jews are under the power of sin because they certainly didn't believe that. As we'll see, they didn't hold that. I say this section then may be practically divided into two main parts, 118 through 32, which mainly targets the Gentiles and then uh, 2, 1 through 8, which is mainly concerned with the Jews. Now, let's begin. So he starts in 118 through 32, and, and he wants to explain that the Gentiles are condemned. Um, now, um, the Jews in Paul's audience would not have disagreed with him. They would have, they would have said yes. Those, uh, those Gentiles. Somebody's got their audio on. Don't even try because you can't. Fellas, you've got your audio on there. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Dr. Combs? Yes. Can I ask a quick question? Oh, go ahead. So when, on the road to Damascus, when Paul was basically knocked off his horse, would you say he was regenerated at that point, or he came to belief uh, subsequent? Because he wouldn't have understood, like you said, the Jews didn't understand this, their need of a Savior the same way, right? Right, right. Well, I'm not sure if he was knocked off his horse or not. That's just a joke. Yeah. It doesn't actually say. Well, it's, it's you know, difficult to know. We, he doesn't tell us everything that's communicated. Now, later he does. He does say that, he, that Christ told him he was going to be the apostle of the Gentiles. So it's hard to know. You know, Paul could have been under conviction for some time. He was obviously around Christians. He was the chief persecutor of the Christians. So my guess is, you know, he had heard, he understood what the gospel was about, who Jesus was probably under conviction, and then, you know, the Lord in that moment brought him to faith, I would think. That's what I would gather, but okay. uh, certainly shortly between that time, and, and he, he comes to faith very quickly. Uh, so the uh, Gentiles are condemned. Um, as I say, Jews would not you know, uh, in John chapter 8, you remember uh, Jesus is talking to the Jews there, particularly religious leaders, and he says uh, to them uh, that they were slaves to sin. And they say, no, we're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been, you know. So they, they because they were, we'll see that especially in chapter 4, they thought because they were descendants of Abraham, they were right with God. That automatically just made you right. If you were, if you were in the covenant, if you were part of Israel, then you were automatically right. So Paul will have to show that's just not true, that all Jews are not necessarily regenerate just because they're of the nation of Israel. But he's going to start with something the Jews would agree to, that the Gentiles are condemned, 118 through 32. Uh, I say here, verse 18, uh, well, I got, verse 18 is the fact of God's wrath against sin. Uh, verse 18 is actually a heading for all that follows in chapter one. It encapsulates the entire argument. It's really a universal indictment. All people stand condemned under the wrath of God. They are in effect without excuse. So um, the fact of God's wrath against sin, 118, we can break that down into two parts. Uh, the reality of God's wrath, uh, number one, and the reason for God's wrath dividing this verse into two sections. Let's look at the first part of verse 18. The wrath of God, Paul says, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. I see here Paul begins his explanation that answers a question that is implied in what he has just said. Why has God manifest his righteousness and why can it appropriate, be appropriated only through faith? God has done so because of the universal condemnation. God's wrath is being revealed against all people who have sinned against his glory. I say here in saying that God's wrath is revealed, Paul means that there is a positive, dynamic, active expression of the divine displeasure. So there's a parallel here between verses 17 and verse 18. In verse 17, you remember he said, 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, of God is revealed, is being revealed. Every time we preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, we are telling people about this righteous, this justification that is available. And here we have the same parallel. We have the same present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed in the preaching of the gospel. There's presently a revelation of God's wrath. So the revelation of God's wrath is a continuous process that's going on concurrently with the revelation of God's righteousness. Now, verses 24 and following suggest that this wrath of God is really visible in the abandonment of mankind, of men and women, to their chosen way of sin. God has let us go. God has let the human race go their own way. Now, we see this especially in these three, God, the three phrases, God gave them over. Uh, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. He just let them go. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over. And verse 28, God gave them over. So God's wrath, Paul is saying, is being revealed in this, as we look at the condition of our world and the history of our world, in that God has let given people over to their own sin and depravity. We might, I mean, many people look at the world and say, I think there was a song, but it's a wonderful world. It's not a wonderful world. <laughs> There's all kinds of wrongs and sin and injustice and terrible things have been done. Uh, evil has been done by all kinds of people to each other and so forth. It's not a beautiful picture. It's really a display of the fact that God's wrath is being revealed in the events of history, I think is what he's talking about. Now, Paul specifies two objects of God's wrath here, the godlessness and wickedness of people. It's being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people. Godlessness denotes irreverence and piety perversity that is religious in character. And uh, probably the reference, as Murray says, commentator Murray says, is to idolatry. Wickedness is maybe a wider term denoting a lack of what is right inwardly, right conduct outwardly. So this godlessness seems to refer mainly to religious sin and more religious connected, denial of God, rejection of God, false religion, idolatry, wickedness to moral sin. Um, I had a teacher who used to say, immorality in, uh, in life proceeds from apostasy and doctrine. What he was saying is when you get off the wrong path doctrinally, that is when you believe the wrong thing, when you don't believe the truth about God, false religions or uh, anti-Christian anti thought. That leads to moral wickedness. That's what's going to happen inevitably. So he's saying there is the wrath of God. It may not be obvious as people look at the world, but if you look at it through the lens of Scripture, you can see that God has, has let men and women engage in their sin for centuries and the depravity has brought havoc and terrible things through the history of the world. 
Um, next, we see the reason for God's wrath. That's the second part of 18. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. But then he says, who suppress the truth by their wickedness? So the reason that I say that the divine wrath is revealed against all of the godlessness and wickedness of people is that they suppress the truth by their wickedness. So the thought here is that um, those against whom God's wrath is revealed do by their wicked lives, they resist, they hinder, they stifle, they suppress, they thwart the truth. They thwart the truth of God. The truth that all people suppress is that the one true God should be worshiped and honored and esteemed as God. And people suppress that. They deny that. They rebel against that. And so contrary to what we're told sometimes, there aren't any true seekers of God out there in the unsaved world. There are really only people who are acting to suppress the truth about God. Um, which Paul will now tell us this is this truth about God is well known to them. It may seem like there are seekers of God, but they're just seeking a God of their own making. They're seeking the kind of God they want, uh, the God that they believe uh, that, that they, that God should be this way. And here's the way I think God should be. That's the kind of God they're seeking, not the God of scripture. We come to be then the justification for God's wrath. So God's wrath is against sin. It's being revealed in the world we live in. What's the justification for that? The justification, Paul tells us, is the mankind's rejection of God. I say here the intent of these verses, this is 19 through 23, is to show that God's wrath upon the Gentile world is justified. God's wrath is justified because, one, God has revealed himself to all mankind, and two, mankind has rejected that revelation. So Paul will say there is a revelation of God to all people. That is, all people who are capable of rational thought, who are old enough to think rationally. So in other words, uh, people who have not heard the gospel per se are, are not condemned uh, for failing to live up to that revelation that they don't possess. They're condemned, Paul will say here, because they've got some revelation, which he'll explain what it is. They've got some revelation from God, and they have not lived up to that. They have, in fact, suppressed that. They have denied that revelation from God. It's called general revelation, the revelation of God in the natural world, in nature, as we'll see. Well, let's see that. Uh, this revelation uh, is in verse 19, 20, God's revelation of himself. Paul explains, since what may be known about God is plain to them, really, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, since the time of the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature 
had been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I say here, all true knowledge of God comes only through God's own revelation of himself. And so in these verses, Paul asserts that all people have been given a knowledge of God through the nature of the world. So God has revealed himself through creation. Revelation of God and creation are natural revelation. Says here, I say here, what may be known about God, verse 19, is defined in verse 20 as God's invisible qualities. And this is further defined as his eternal power and divine nature. So Paul says all people who are capable of rational thought uh, know that there is a God, that God is powerful, and he possesses the qualities normally associated with deity. Now, this knowledge of God is limited, and it's impure. Uh, it's confined to the basic attributes of God that may, may be discerned from, from nature, but it's so mixed with false ideas. In other words, depravity comes in here with, because we're sinners. Even though you should be able to look out creation and say, you know, there's got to be somebody behind this thing. There's got to be somebody who made this thing. There's got to be a God. Uh, the problem is, because we're sinners, we pervert that truth that we should see clearly, but we don't. I say, or what can be made known of God is plain to them. It's plain because God has made it plain to them in creation, as verse 20 explains. The result of this revelation in nature is that all people are without excuse. Now, the only way that that could be true, that people, we had this revelation, and then he says, so that people are without excuse, is if uh, revelation is universally rejected, which Paul, in fact, will explicitly declare in the next verse. He'll say, for although they knew God, everybody knows God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, verse 21. So the point is, there has never been anyone who has responded positively to natural revelation. Now, why people don't respond positively, Paul will explain later in chapter 5, depravity, corruption. We're sinners. So even though we should be able to look at our God's creation and realize there's a God, and we should worship him and love him and seek him, we don't naturally do that. Because we're sinful, we naturally turn away from that. We pervert that. We say, okay, there is a God, but here's the God, here's how God is. We make idols. People have made idols, physical idols. Are they they make gods of their own making? So natural revelation doesn't lead anybody to salvation. It only leads to the demonstration, as we'll see, that God is just. I say this knowledge of God in natural revelation is not saving knowledge. The content itself is not sufficient. So you can't look at creation and say, you know, uh, God has a son named Jesus and he came to earth and you can't, there's nothing about the gospel in the stars or in creation. So you can't, it's not sufficient for salvation. Salvation only comes through the preached word about Christ, as Paul makes perfectly clear in Romans 10, 14 through 17. I say all this because 
Some have said, oh, there's a gospel in the stars. You could look at the stars and somehow discern. The, that's not true. Paul says, how then can they call upon the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, the Lord has believed, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith, saving faith, comes not from the stars, <laughs> but from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. I say it's clear that Paul has no other way of salvation. That is, it's not through natural revelation. Besides, all people, as we've been told in verse 18, universally suppress and distort natural revelation so that they are without excuse. They look at creation and say, oh, this is due to evolution. That's how this earth got here. That's how this universe got here. It's the Big Bang, you know. There are no exceptions among the human race to this rejection of natural revelation. Otherwise, this would destroy Paul's conclusion in 3, 9 through 20 that all people without exception are under the dominion of sin. The only answer, Paul says, is the saving power of the gospel. All right, the justification of <coughs> wrath, man's rejection, Paul now explicitly says, verses 21 through 23. Verses 21 through 23 tell of mankind's rejection of the revelation of God's, of the creator's eternal power and divinity. They supply the missing link in the argument of verse 20. Mankind's refusal to acknowledge and worship God explain why the revelation of God in nature leads to mankind being without excuse. For although they knew God, so there it is. All people know there's a God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts, were, foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. So two things are brought out. First, mankind's rejection of God was deliberate, although they knew God. So Paul says there aren't really any atheists in the world, not true atheists, because all people have a knowledge of God. All people know there is a God. Now, although this is genuine knowledge of God, it's not enough to save. It's not saving knowledge. And of course, as we said, they pervert this knowledge. And they'll say, I don't believe in God. Yeah, they'll say that and really mean that. But that's because of sin. They have uh, suppressed the truth. I say a glorified is a translation of the word occurring five times in Romans, used here of the response that people owe to God as creator and Lord of life. So when we glorify God, when we say we're going to glorify God, we don't augment or add to his inherent, inherent the splendor, his majesty. Rather, when we glorify him, when we acknowledge his divine perfections, we acknowledge who he is and give him the honor and praise that is due him as God. It includes the, the, the attitude of humble obedience and humble trust. So all people know there is a God. You know, it's not really necessary to prove to unsaved people that, I mean, there's a God. The arguments for the existence of God are sometimes helpful. Uh, there's no question about that. But the truth is, 
all people know that there is a God. They have just suppressed it and they deny it. Second, mankind's rejection of God was degrading. Instead of acknowledging God as God, by glorifying him and thanking him, human beings pervert their knowledge and sink into idolatry. Paul says their thinking became futile. So they went astray in their thinking. Their thoughts turned to worthless things. Their reasoning was de destitute of fruitful thought. Uh, one translation says they made nonsense out of logic. How true that is. Also, their foolish hearts were darkened. The darkening of their hearts represents a digression. Having become futile in their thinking, uh, people are, by following their futile thoughts, led into a lower depth of spiritual darkness. The Greek word heart here means mainly the intellectual element of the inner life. So the heart becomes darkened as a result of their failure to recognize the true God, of suppressing the truth about God. Um, the thinking of people shares fully in the fallenness of the whole person. So sin, depravity, affects not us only morally, but it affects us intellectually. The intellect is not exempt from corruption, from depravity. So you can't just say, I'm going to appeal to someone's intellect as some sort of impartial arbiter. No, even our thinking is corrupted by sin. Um, verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. The degeneration in people's understanding of God asserted in verse 21 is characterized further in verse 30, 22 by a characterization contrast between illusion and reality. So in refusing to pay homage to God when his works were recognized, people claimed to be obtaining wisdom, to acquiring wisdom. In reality, it's the opposite. They're becoming foolish. I mean, people who deny the existence of God and tell us that, you know, the world just evolved and all this happened, they, they're thought to be the wisest people. They're fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like, a mortal, like mortal beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 23 from verse 23, it's clear that the foolish foolishness consists not only in refusal to worship the true God, but also embracing of false gods. So in Paul's description here of idolatry, he, he describes the tendency of people to corrupt their knowledge of God by making gods of their own. And this process of God-making, you know, continues even to our own day. People commonly make gods of money, of fame, of sex. John Calvin famously said, the heart is an idle factory. Well, the revelation of God's wrath, the consequences of mankind's rejection. Verses 19 through 23 have told of the pagans world's rejection of God now Paul, now tell of God's consequent rejection of them. Mankind's sin is their abandonment of God. God punishes mankind by abandoning them. Three times in these verses, there occurs the statement, God gave them over, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. And we see that the first one is verse 24 through 25. God abandoned mankind to sexual impurity. 
Well, one of these days I'm going to have to uh, make more progress 